Okay, so uh, we're going to get started. Welcome to, uh, to the third in our series of four uh, in the first set of the West Side, West Side Wednesday Night Learnings. Um, one of the things that, that we were talking about uh, before Aaron continues on with the Miguelatis there lectures are that um, Miriam and I were, were each noticing that there were some, some themes that were coming out of the Miguelat Esther lectures that also related to some of the, the Chaburot that we were doing between 7 and 8. So, for example, one of the things that I noticed last week was that, do you remember Aaron mentioned that there is a, um, there is a discussion in, in Masachet Megillah about, um, about uh, Esther being married to Mordechai. And you were saying you know, that it creates a lot of problems for the story and it doesn't necessarily seem to solve so many of them. But I was thinking that to the extent that the people in my class, we've been looking at stories of uh, stories in Breshit where women are taken by foreign rulers. So, so far we've seen the story of um, Sarai being taken by, by Paro and Sarai being taken by Avimelech. And tonight we looked at Rivka almost being taken by Avimelech. Um, and I think that there's a way in which uh, this trope of a woman kind of being taken by a foreign ruler is a way of indicating the sort of relative powerlessness of, of the family, right? The family that can't protect the woman from the ruler is, is a family that is feeling very, very vulnerable in those situations. And I think that maybe my, by making Esther into Mordechai's wife, there's a sense that Esther is kind of in the similar position to, um, to her four mothers, right, to Sarah and Rika, who, who are taken. And there's a sense that, you know, the community is kind of vulnerable maybe in the way that... Um, Avram and Yitzhak and their sort of small families traveling around were, were vulnerable. Um, and, and I think it also kind of highlights the fact that uh, Sarah is sort of miraculously saved, but Esther, by the end of the Megillah, is kind of still, still where she is. And you get the sense that it's very much an exile story, right? It's a story where at the end, you know, there isn't sort of this great, you know, moment where, you know, everyone sort of goes back to the families that they came from. Instead, she's kind of stuck where, where she's been moved to. Um, and Miriam was saying that she had some you had some connections from the stone class also? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. People hear you better. Um, last week Aaron was talking about like Esther sort of having exercising power in a subtle way that it would have by feminine. Um, right. she her she, her belief she has to get what she wants by manipulating other people to do it for her essentially. Um, and I would say some some similar things with stone because the last week we were looking at on the one hand, the rabbis have a lot of anecdotes about the, the, just, the formal justice system of stone being sort of fundamentally corrupted, perverse, and all these people things. And on the other hand, there's, there's sort of anecdotes about the informal justice system, the informal social norms of stone being also corrupt in a different way. Um, and that, that sort of, that tension between like the, the overt and the covert power, which also to some degree maps on the, the difference between the way that male care and justice, the stories of justice Sorry, I just want to remind you um, that not this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday, um, we'll be having here at Grisha a day of learning dedicated to the study of Mishnah. 
Um, in, on the occasion of the 10th yard site of Rivka Rosenwein, who is a great friend of Drisha and uh, a writer, um, and there is a really spectacular lineup of people uh, who are going to be involved at that, on that occasion. Um, so that's for 10 days from now. Okay. And thrown in, uh, in Yerushalayim. So that's in the time of the Hashemunayim. Uh, they're ruling in Yerushalayim. What's going on in Alexandria? You know anything about the Jewish community in Alexandria? What? <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Um, apparently, about a million Jews in Alexandria, at least at least uh, 50 years later, told there are a million Jews in Alexandria. That's a lot of Jews. Um, the uh, we have better sources for the for the following century than for the first century BCE, but but uh, but nothing dramatic seems to have intervened in between. So there's no reason to think things change all that much. Uh, a century later, this is the time of Philo, Philo Judaeus, the, the philosopher. Uh, lives in Alexandria, but uh, in the first century BCE, this is a huge Jewish community. It's usually assumed that the Septuagint itself, the translation of the Torah into Greek, was translated perhaps by, certainly for, the Jews in Alexandria. Chazal tell us that the giant shul in Alexandria has a Torah Gaman, where the, uh, the Torah was read and then it was uh, translated, projected in Greek to the, uh, to the audience. Um, it's usually assumed for very good reason that the Jews in Alexandria, on the whole, didn't speak Hebrew. Um, even Philo, who wrote uh, 50 books about the Torah, about Jewish uh, thought, uh, doesn't read Hebrew. Uh, he reads everything in translation, reads everything in, in Greek. And so it's, uh, we have a, a book here being translated by Jews in Yerushalayim, who of course do at least understand Hebrew, whether or not they were actually native speakers of it, uh, translated for a very large Jewish community, very influential Jewish community, in Alexandria that doesn't speak Hebrew, that does, uh, does want to read, apparently, Jewish literature in, in Greek. Um, let's think a little bit about the dynamics of that, but, but before we do that, of course, I want to look at uh, what we actually have. So there's two, uh, two passages that we'll look at together. The, um, the Greek translation of Esther, uh, as I said, is, is far more than a translation. So it is a translation. Pretty much every line in Hebrew has a Greek Translation. I didn't give it to you. I hope that's okay. Um, but uh, but beyond that, there are six big additions. Additions uh, with an A, um, meaning if you line up the Hebrew with the Greek, you're going to find six gigantic paragraphs that are in the Greek that are unparalleled in the Hebrew. Seem to be not translated at all from anything. They seem to be uh, simply added on. Uh, that's actually slightly misleading the way I just said that. It could, of course, be that they were added in Hebrew and the translation of Greek, or the, the Greek version that we have, is translated from a Hebrew version that had these additions. Do we, um, we don't have that. The Hebrew. We have Hebrew Esther. What do you mean? No, do we have the Hebrew edition? Edition. No, we don't have the Hebrew editions. Uh, so it's entirely a matter of speculation whether or not there was a Hebrew prototype for these Greeks. Um, there, there is a, a sort of scholarly consensus that some of them were originally in Hebrew, some of them were added in Greek. The ones we're going to look at, scholars usually think were in fact added in Hebrew. Um, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. The language doesn't interest me so much as much as the fact that if it was added in Hebrew, that means it's added in Yerushalayim. If it's added in Greek, it could have been added in Alexandria. So that might make a, bit, a very big difference, but we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Uh, and in fact, if you open the book, open Greek Esther, it's very easy to find Greek Esther, just for the record. If anyone wants to actually read the rest of it, uh, which is worth reading, uh, you find things, besides the, uh, the big additions that we'll look at, uh, you also find things like uh, the beginning of chapter 
six in Hebrew Bailelahu Nadadash Natamela. Um in Greek has uh, on that night God kept sleep from the king, uh, making very explicit what in the book is actually not at all explicit. That this is a divine act, God intervening in the king's sleep. Uh, God's actually mentioned a few times, besides in the additions, in the straight translation. God's uh, sort of inserted into the book in the Greek in the Greek version. So where would you find the Greek version of Esther? You could Google it, obviously, and then you get it. That's how I got it for this. But, uh, but where, where is sort of a, does it officially exist? Where would you find the Greek version? Um, Catholic the Catholic Bible, exactly right. So the Catholic Bible is uh, any, any Catholic Bible today is a translation of the original uh, Greek Bible uh, of the Christian Church. Uh, it's not in the Protestant Bible because Luther went through the Bible found all the stuff that was not in the Hebrew Bible and said, well, I don't know, this is obviously you know, corrupt church stuff. Uh, take it out. Take it out. So that's true about whole books, uh, like, for example, the books of Maccabees. Not, not bad books. These are books, almost all Jewish books. Uh, books of Maccabees are not in the, not in the Jewish Bible, as we all know. Uh, they, are, they were in the Christian Bible a thousand years ago. Uh, Luther took them out. So now they're in the Catholic Bible, not in the Protestant Bible. Uh, all of those books... All those books, the books that are in the Catholic Bible, not in the Protestant Bible, not in the Hebrew Bible, not in Tanakh. Uh, what's the term for that? The Apocrypha, exactly right. So that's a, a, a lousy term, um, but uh, it's a term that it goes, that it goes by. So the Apocrypha are exactly that. Those are the books that were in the Christian Bible, not in the Jewish Bible, and now are still found in the, in the Catholic Bible. So depending on the printing, uh, you might find just the book of Esther in a Catholic Bible. Uh, but most today actually have Esther and then the additions to Esther. Uh, in other words, it's sort of a nod to the fact that other Bibles don't have it. But if you open up Esther in the Catholic Bible, in the Greek Bible, uh, the first thing you, you find is something that's going to sound very unfamiliar. In the second year of the reign of Ahasuerus the Great, on the first day of Nisan, Mordechai, son of Yair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, had a dream. The book sort of backtracks a second. He was a Jew living in the city of Shushan, a great man serving the court of the king. He was one of the captives whom Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had brought from Jerusalem with King Nehemiah of Judah, and this was his dream. Noises and confusion, thunders and earthquakes, tumult on the earth. When two, then two great dragons came forward, both ready to fight, and they roared terribly. At their roaring, every nation prepared for war to fight against the righteous nation. It was a day of darkness and gloom, of tribulation and distress, affliction and great tumult on the earth. And the whole righteous nation was troubled. They feared the evils that threatened them, and they were ready to perish. They cried out to God, and at their outcry, as though from a tiny spring there came a great river with abundant water. Light came, and the sun rose, and the lowly were exalted and devoured those held in honor. Mordechai saw in the dream what God determined to do, and after he awoke, he had it on his mind, seeking all day to understand it in every detail. And then for the rest of the book, we don't hear of this dream, because it doesn't play a role in the rest of the story, until the very, very end, after the story as we have it in Hebrew, uh, there, as I said, there are six big editions, so that's edition A. Edition F, the very end of the story... Are these bookends? These two are absolutely bookends, exactly right. Uh, Mordechai said, These things have come from God, for I remember the dream that I had concerning these matters, and none of them has failed to be fulfilled. There was a little spring that became a river, there was light and sun and abundant water, the river is Esther, whom the king married and made queen. The two dragons are Haman and myself. The nations are those that gathered to the short name of the Jews. And my nation, this is Israel, who cried out to God and was saved. The Lord saved his people, and so on. Uh, and that's exactly how the book ends, and that's exactly right. So the beginning and end of the book are now, in, the book is now introduced and concluded 
with, a, uh, with an episode that's totally ad- additional, totally un, uh, unforeseen in the Hebrew text. Uh, there's nothing like it in the Hebrew text. Uh, and I, I would submit, and I think uh, you'll probably agree, uh, radically changes our impression of Mordechai. Uh, and that's what I want to what I want to think about a little bit together. Uh, how does this change Mordechai? What does it do for Mordechai? Or to put it differently, why would anyone be motivated to add this to the book? Um, what is it about these additions, at the beginning and end, that, or what do these additions do that the author would say, you know, the book is missing this? What's the this? God. Okay, so God is clearly a big part of it, and we're going to see that throughout. All the additions are. There's no Hester Panim anymore. Yeah, there is no Hester Panim. Uh, and there's no God hiding his face, right? Which is uh, traditionally, we'll, we'll come back to it hopefully today, but uh, from, the, from the rabbis of the Talmud already, you know, that's the major theme of the book, is that God hid his face, but it's still there. So the Greek translator, or whoever added this, uh, had no patience for, for such subtleties, right? I don't want to hear about God hiding his face, but helping from behind the curtain. If God's going to help, let him come help. And so he sticks him in. So that's certainly a sort of heavy-handed insertion of God. I mean, that's certainly part of it. I think there's also more to it. Yeah, please. We also have a male prophet. It's a prophet, right. What kind of prophet? Or, or what biblical characters are, are like in this model? Like Joseph. Like Joseph. Nice. That's a great, that's a great, uh, a great connection. So, of course, there are lots of connections between the story of Esther and the, and the story of Joseph. Uh, verbal connections, thematic connections... Um, and that's, that's, not, uh, that's not so surprising. It's certainly not an accident. Um, to go back to something we talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the author of Esther is living in a new reality. Right? What's, what's fundamentally different about his reality than most of the Bible's reality? Hmm? Exile. Exile, yeah. Living in no king, no homeland, uh, no autonomy. Um, so if he's going to look back in the Bible, look back in Tanakh for models, uh, they're few and far between. In other words, he wants a model of Jews surviving, existing, thriving in a diaspora setting. The book of Shmuel is not going to give it to you. The book of Kings is not going to give it to you. Uh, the book of Joshua is not going to give it to you. There's really not much that you can look to. There's one striking story. Right? The story of Joseph. And uh, the book of Esther is full of allusions to the, to the story of Joseph. Uh, for exactly that reason. There's another book also from uh, Second Temple Times that also is full of allusions to the book of Joseph. Uh, I don't know if it's familiar. Uh, yeah, the book of Daniel. Daniel also, uh, especially some of the chapters, chock full of allusions to the, book of, uh, to the story of Joseph. And again, for the same reason. You're looking for a model uh, of a Jew surviving in a foreign court under a foreign king and yet surviving as a Jew. Well, Joseph is someone who was a Jew in a foreign court and uh, because of his position in the foreign court... Joseph was able to save the Jewish people, quote-unquote, which at that point was only 11 people, but, but still, he saved the Jews. Um, so Esther, certainly uh, going to be modeled Mordecai as well, uh, and Joseph Daniel modeled on Joseph, and the author of these editions has taken that a step farther, right? Because if you step back and say, well, okay, Mordecai and Esther in the Hebrew book of Esther, uh, there's some connections to, to Joseph, I see it, I get it, I understand the, the uh, political impulse there, but there's a vast difference between Joseph and Mordecai and Esther, right? Joseph, after all, like you said, uh, Joseph, after all, was uh, given dreams by God that this was his destiny. Uh, Mordecai and Esther, what are they? they have no, no religious calling. I don't see anything religious. They haven't even spoken to God. 
they haven't acknowledged God. There's nothing religious at all. So there's the desire to put God in the story, but more specifically, there's the desire to make them the recipients of divine favor, divine prophecy. So here you're Mordecai, even more in the, uh, in the image of Joseph. Uh, specifically, God has given Mordecai a dream that tells him the destiny of himself and the people the same way he did to, to Joseph. So I think that's a, that's, a really great, that's a really great point. Um, it makes Mordecai into a very different kind of character. Because in the, in the regular text, it's like, well, I overheard this rumor, but here it's, it's coming from God. It's not like yeah, exactly. I heard the street. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, when we talked the last couple of weeks about how, you know, Mordecai, maybe he should feel bad about what he did. It was all, you know, terrible... That one misunderstanding, uh, but uh, but here it's very clear. This was divine destiny from the beginning. Mordecai was slated by God to fight this cosmic battle against Haman. This is not just an accident of happenstance. Who happened to be where at what time? Uh, this is something that God wanted uh, in order to destroy not just Haman, but who else gets destroyed in the dream? Well, it turns out it's not just a fight with Haman, right? Uh, in the Hebrew text, you might have said, "Well, it's Haman, basically." and whoever was uh, allied with him. But here, uh, if you look in edition A, in um, uh, 7, verse, in, call it plus anxiety, but verse 7, who else is fighting? Everyone, the entire world is lined up against Israel. Right? This, is a, this is a cosmic battle of the Jews against the rest of the world. Haman is just the sort of advanced frontier uh, representing the rest of the world. Uh, which has to be then defeated by Mordecai, uh, but more importantly, by Esther sent by God, this little spring that becomes a great river, uh, and saves him. Alright, so these additions certainly change the character of Mordecai and change the character of the story in general. Uh, as you mentioned, it's, they're bookends. So you don't even have a chance to ask the questions of where is God in the story. Before you even get into the story, we're told there's a dream. Much like the story of Joseph, uh, because one of the, one of the uh, aspects of the, of the story of Yosef that's less obvious because it's in the context of uh, the book of Breshit um, and because it has the introduction of uh, Yosef's dreams is that once Yosef sold to Egypt uh, he becomes the first person in the entire book of, of Breshit the first major character in the book of Breshit not to talk to God uh, God doesn't talk to him he doesn't talk to God he invokes God he says things like God will t- tell you the meaning of your dream O Pharaoh and things like that uh, but, but God doesn't speak to him anymore uh, there is no God communicating with Yosef. Uh, it's as if, and I, I don't really mean this as if, I think this is really what the story is saying. It's as if once Yosef gets to exile, he's out of communication with God. There's a barrier there. He had dreams, but that was back in, uh, back in Canaan. Once he's in Egypt, those lines of communication are cut off. Now, that's again uh, a way in which the story of Yosef serves as a model for Miguel Esther. Miguel Esther says, look, again, I look back from my models of what life is like in the diaspora, one thing I have to not put in my story is direct communication from God to the main characters. Because I look back at Yosef and I see that he doesn't get any direct communication from God. Um, but, but, and it's a big but, but, uh, but at the beginning of the story of Joseph, it's framed by Yosef's dreams. So we're all told up front, God's behind us. God's, God's involved to some extent. Uh, those dreams are entirely transparent, right? They're not like cryptic dreams. Uh, it's very, very clear what, what, the, what the dreams mean. So we're set up for what's going to happen in the rest of the story. So as things unfold, even though God's not overtly in the story, we're not caught off guard, and we know that God's actually behind this in some, in some way. The story of Esther, the author of the Hebrew Esther, did something remarkable. He copied so much of the Yosef story, except for the bookends. 
Because not just the dreams at the beginning of the story of Joseph, at the end, when the brothers come to Joseph and they say, hey, you know, we're so sorry. If we had known, maybe we wouldn't have done this. Uh, what does Joseph say? And what Joseph says to the brothers? God who ordained this. Yeah, it wasn't you. It wasn't you who brought me out of Egypt. It was God. Right? Now, God doesn't tell Joseph that, but Joseph invokes God. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for the author of Esther to say, to have Mordecai or Esther get up at the end and say, now we see what was really happening here. It was Panim. God, God was behind this the whole time. But the author of Esther doesn't do that. He uses it to us to wonder, or maybe to conclude, but doesn't have the characters actually get up and make a statement of religious nature, even at the end, even in retrospect. There's nothing like that. The author of the edition said, okay, all this uh, nuance and subtlety, this is going to be lost on some people. Right? What might some people actually say about the story of Esther? If you say, God hid it, what could someone else say? God's not there. Right, who said God's here? If you assume God's here, he's hidden. What if I don't assume God's here? So what's the claim of the book of Esther then? In diaspora, you're on your own. Yeah, work hard. You'll figure it out. Uh, but uh, the author of this edition says that's, that's intolerable. I don't know whether that's the author's intention, not the author's intention, but that's not tolerable. We can't allow that message to, to even be a possibility. So let's make it clear up front, like in the Joseph story. Up front, we need to have the dream. At the end, we need to have the main character saying, now I understand. Right? This now very closely models the structure of the story of Yosef, where, uh, where there's no room for doubt. There's no, there's no subtlety, there's no nuance, there's no ambiguity about what the role of God is in this story. Very clear. So God set it up from the beginning, and the character reflects on it at the end. So you can easily play an interesting part of the game here, which is basically, you know, whose agenda yeah. is this? Whose agenda? Agenda is it, right. Is it the diasporanics? want to show uh, you don't have to live in Israel to, uh, mm. you know, to, to be close to Akkadis Baruch mm-hmm. Is it the, uh, uh, I don't know, but uh, I'm sure there are uh, a bunch of agendas here. I'm sure there are. Uh, I think that's exactly right. I think, let, let's just remember that the Greek translation, sorry, the Greek translation, this version with the additions, all we know about it is that it's being sent from Yerushalayim to Alexandria. So you're right to put diaspora back into our, into our thinking. Right, so the Jews in Yerushalayim, uh, not just Jews in Yerushalayim, not the stereotype Jews in Yerushalayim, but the Hashmonaim. What do the Hashmonaim think about, uh, about diaspora, about God, about all miracles? So we have, you know, the Book of Maccabees, we have uh, stories of Hanukkah. Uh, where would they come down on these things? What do the Hashmonaim think about such, a, such <coughs> issues? What do we know about them? Yeah, certainly fight, right? I mean, you've got to get up and fight. Uh, do, they, do they recognize miracles? Do they recognize God? Yeah, absolutely. Books of Maccabees are full of miracles, but you take the initiative, uh, and then God will step in. Don't, certainly don't think that God is not involved. Right? There's, no, there's no, uh, no thought that God's not involved. He's there, overtly even, in the Book of Maccabees. Um, Jews in Alexandria, we don't know very much about what they thought, unfortunately. Um, but one could certainly imagine a story where the, book, the Jews in Alexandria were actually very happy with the book of Esther. They said, this is exactly the kind of book that we like. Naturalistic, you know, there's a big empire, we don't fight against the big empire. Well, we think God's around, but uh, we're not going to rely on too much. We're certainly not going to expect any big miracles or big salvations. Uh, we're going to go through our life trying to survive the best we can and, and hope to make it through to another, another generation. And the Jews in Yerushalayim said, well, that's a terror. We can't allow them to think that, and if they're going to read the Book of Esther, we can't allow them to read the Book of Esther that way. It's got to be overtly religious. It's got to be much more, uh, much more God-centric. 
or that they're religious in exile, but 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 um in the book of Esther we're being told we can defend ourselves and we don't have to know the prophetic message from God that you have the right to send to defend their lives. It's a lot like our time, but it's they're 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 talking there's a genocidal threat and we have a right to defend ourselves. And some of us are religious, some are not, like in Zionism. Some are religious, some are not religious, but we have the right to defend ourselves. Now, I can understand, I'm not so sure about why the Mormons did what they did. I, I understand why maybe the Catholics were nervous that Jews thought that they could do like uh, self-defense or revolution without yeah, authorization from on high. I did say it. Yeah, so I'm not going to get into the later reception of Esther, but uh, Luther, just take one example, thought that Esther was a terrible book, uh, full of, uh, uh, he called it, ugly nationalism, um, uh, sort of triumphalism, like the Jews are you know, bloodthirsty, are going to go out and, and destroy all their enemies. So he thought it was terrible. And like you said, there's living, at, for diaspora Jews, there's actually a, a danger in making too big a deal of a book that says, you know, well, if, if we ever feel threatened, we might turn around and massacre all of our enemies. Uh, I mean, that, very explicit about self-defense. I mean, that's not the way they teach you. Right, right. Well, yeah. But, I mean, it's actually in the text. Right, it depends how you read one line. Where they, they may or may not have killed also the wives and children of all of their enemies. And if they did, that... That goes yeah, beyond self-defense. I remember that, that was my first big conflict with, with any rabbinic establishment. Like, and, like, <laughs> I was really upset about all uh, the children and the guys. And yeah. later on, you have to read any child who's up there at school. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, alright. So we'll, we'll set that aside for now. But, um, yeah. And, and chapter 9 is where the where at least those complications arise. You want to say something? Um, I was just wondering, we, we're so far we're pretty much assuming that the original version is what we do uh, say of, and this is the later version. Yeah. But maybe I want, is it possible that maybe this is the original version, and at some point, maybe after, uh, and it's, you know, as Vivis Temple Judaism turned into Rabbinic Judaism, yeah, so that's a great it's a great possibility. Uh, putting it that late is probably too late, but um, that's a very good point, right? I've assumed that the Hebrew version that we have is the original, and someone added uh, these six big paragraphs, you know, which is, is conventional. You can tell it's called, it's called addition A and so on, right. but uh, but it's still an assumption, and that's a very good point. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it right now, but um, I'll say the short answer is. You have to ask, which one's more plausible? Would someone take the sort of overtly religious book and strip it of its religious elements? Uh-huh. Or would someone take the potentially dangerously ambiguous book and make it clearly religious? Um, that's oversimplifying the issues, but, uh, but I think that's you know, the crux of it. Uh, but you're certainly right. We don't have the actual empirical evidence. You know, the Hebrew one is dated X year, and the Greek one is dated that Y year, and that proves it. Uh, it's, it is all inductive. So I think that's a, that's a very good issue to put your finger on. Yeah. Just in response to that, I mean, once you take a look at the tefillah, the Mordecai's tefillah, and you look at the power of this, you know, I mean, I'm, I look at this and say, how can anybody have knocked this out? It's just, it's just yeah, I mean, too great. It's just, you know. Yeah. All right, so let's actually turn to that for a moment. Um, I actually don't want to look at Mordecai's tefillah, just for time's sake. Let's, uh, let's gloss it over Mordecai's 
too loud, which is the first paragraph on the second side of the page. Um, people have actually written to, well, one person wrote <laughs> an interesting article about the uh, the gender of the different tefillot, uh, looking at the different prayers here, um, and what for the author is appropriate for a male prayer, and what's appropriate for a female prayer. Uh, but since we're not going to read uh, Mordecai's prayer, uh, I'm not going to pursue that, but uh, since you have it in front of you, um, on your way home, you'll read it, and you'll think about that. Uh, but let's skip to Esther. So this is situated, audition C now, uh, just to sort of fill out the picture. Addition A and F we looked at. That's the dream and its interpretation. Addition B and E are also a pair. Uh, they are uh, the text of the letter that Haman sends to the Medinot, the text that, uh, the genocidal letter. Uh, there's actually a text in the Greek text that says, you know, to all the people, you're allowed to go do whatever, and so on. Uh, in the Hebrew text, there is no letter excerpt. It just says that he sent a letter to the following effect. Uh, the text of the letter is actually in the Greek version. I don't really mean that the text of the letter is in the Greek version. The Greek version includes a, uh, a text of that letter. Um, and addition E, the second to last one, is the text of the letter sent by Mordechai and Esther to the Jews. So that's also uh, a matched pair. Uh, and C and D are situated right next to each other, right here, right in between when we have Paradal and Paradal, chapter 4 and chapter 5, right in between the discussion between Mordecai and Esther about what to do to save the Jews and Esther's entry into the into the palace to actually get things get things moving. So of course, as chapter four ends in the book that's familiar to us, uh, Esther has said, "Go fast, uh, go gather all the Jews, fast for three days, and I and my maidservants will also do that." Mordechai leaves. Uh, in the Greek version, we then have prayers: Mordechai's prayer and then Esther's prayer. So again, let's look at Esther's Esther's prayer. Queen Esther, seized with deadly anxiety, fled to the Lord. Whatever that means exactly. Uh, she took off her splendid apparel put on the garments of distress and mourning. And instead of costly perfume, she covered her hair with ashes and dung. And she utterly humbled her body. Every part that she loved to adorn, she covered with her tangled hair. So that's actually... Reflect on that for one moment. Because uh, we talked about it in the dynamic of the clothes, the response of, uh, of both Mordecai and Esther in terms of their garb, in terms of what they appeared, how they appeared uh, in the Hebrew text. So to remind ourselves, when Haman's decree goes out, what does Mordechai put on? What? favor. He puts on sackcloth and, and ashes. What did Esther do after the whole discussion? What does she put on? Royalty. Right? So here, that's reversed. Not the Mordechai part, but the Esther part. Uh, it seems like the author wants to say, oh, look, that, that response is a little too, a little too uh, unfeeling. Where's the mourning part? First we need to have the Alveluit. First we need to have the sackcloth, uh, garments of distress. Uh, it goes even over the top, ashes and dung. Uh, no adornment, right? The opposite of the Malchut. She prayed to the Lord God of Israel and said, O oh my Lord, you are a king. Help me, who am alone and have no helper but you, for my danger is in my hand. Ever since I was born, I've heard in the tribe of my family that you, O oh Lord, took Israel out of all the nations and our ancestors from among all, the, all their forebears. Um, and that you did for them all that you promised. And now we've sinned before you. You've handed us over to our enemies because we glorified their gods. That, that totally changes uh, or injects something into the story that's just not in the Hebrew text, right? Why are they in exile according to the Hebrew book of Esther? Actually, a remarkable thing. What did the book of Esther say about why they're in exile? It's absolutely nothing. Right? There's no prehistory to it. There's no story about once upon a time the Jews lived in Yehuda. There's that one mention that Mordechai's great-grandfather was exiled from Yerushalayim with Yerushalayim. But that's not a big deal. Uh, and it's especially striking 
people have Tanas, right? It's especially striking if you open Sefer Daniel, which is set, you know, more or less the same time, more or less the same place, too. <laughs> From my perspective, anyway. It's a century apart and like 100 miles, but, you know. 2,500 years later, what's the difference? Um, but of course, the book of Daniel is also about the exile. It's also about Daniel and, and uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah who are in exile. But it starts with the backstory. In the third year of King Yeriakim, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and God handed over the Jews to the Babylonians, and he took them into exile, and he took all that, the uh, kelim from the treasury of God, and so on. This is an introduction that explains how the Jews got into exile. Whereas in the book of Esther, it's simply a matter of fact. The Jews are in exile, doesn't need any special explanation, doesn't need any special comment. Uh, there's no there's no theological spin, which Daniel had, right? God handed the Jews off over into the Babylonians. Uh, Esther says nothing at all. The Jews simply live in Shushan. And the author never says a word about how they got there, why they're there, why this is okay, why they haven't gone back, why they're there to begin with. There's no comment on the on exile as a fact. <coughs> Esther and Tefillah feels the need to say something about it. We've sinned. You've handed us over to our enemies because we glorify their gods. You are righteous, O Lord. And now they're not satisfied. They were in bitter slavery. They have covenanted with their idols to abolish what your mouth has ordained and destroy your inheritance. Next paragraph is the part that's really striking about Esther. Um, let's skip to the middle. Right in the middle. Uh, but save us by your hand and help me who am alone and have no helper but you, O Lord. You have knowledge of all things. You know that I hate the splendor of the wicked and abhor the bed of the uncircumcised and of any alien. You know my necessity, that I abhor the sign of my proud position, which is upon my head on days when I appear in public. I abhor it like a filthy rag. That's a bit of a euphemism in English. Uh, in Greek, it actually is uh, literally a menstrual rag. She abhors her crown like a menstrual rag. And I don't wear it on days when I'm at leisure. And your servant has not eaten at Haman's table. I have not honored the king's feast or drunk the wine of libations. Your servant has had no joy since the day that I was brought here until now, except in you, O Lord God of Abraham. O God, whose might is over all, hear the voice of the despairing and save us from the hand of evildoers and save me from my fear. So, I mean, to my mind, this changes everything. Um, but I want, to hear, I want to hear what you think. How did this change Esther? What does it do for the character of Esther that uh, is, is new or different or find or just uh, noteworthy. What strikes you about this? What well, last week did we say she was totally assimilated? She had no Jewish identity at that point. We didn't even know how she felt about being Jewish. Well, we didn't know, right? That's a key yeah. point, right? Exactly. We, we really didn't know what was in her heart. So, again, 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 right, the ambiguity of, you know, what did Esther think in her heart uh, is not acceptable to the author of this edition, right? I don't want you thinking, you know, is Esther really loyal to, to the Jews or not? Let's make it totally clear. She is loyal to the Jews. Now, of course, the author has a lot of problems to overcome. It's not so easy to say that Esther is loyal to the Jews, because after all, uh, after all, oh, you tell me, after all what? What, what strongly suggests that uh, it's not so clear where her loyalties lie, or, uh, you know, this, this portrait that this text this paints of her, not, not the most obvious one. Uh, my high hospitality Certainly, right? Uh, right, she doesn't seem to make any efforts to, to find out what's going on with the Jews. Um, when Mordecai comes to her, she doesn't say, like, oh my gosh, the Jews need to help my people. Uh, definitely true. Yeah, also, um, in the Hebrew version, 
seems like she, Esther's saying that Roman, I mean, she believes that he's in God, but she's saying no one could really know any of the decree to be the king. Yeah. I want to go to the king looking real nice, so yeah. I want, you know, I want to listen to what I have to say. Yeah, I think it's well said. I mean, when she says, um, I have no helper but you, O Lord, that's a very different picture than we get in the Hebrew text, where she seems to put her faith not in God, but in her husband, the king, who actually has all the power. She says, you know, I can, I can do this. I can make him save the Jews. Uh, but she doesn't invoke God. Well, we know she doesn't invoke God, because God doesn't mention it at all. She does fast. She does fast. That's one of those striking cases. There's a couple of striking cases in the book where, where there's almost no other way to read it other than as a religious uh, act, and yet... What's fasting usually accompanied by? Peace. <laughs> well, afterwards, but normally they you know going to fast and and pray exactly. Uh, in the Book of Esther, go fast for three days and and what? Stop? Like it just you know, um, you know you have to imagine to give it any meaning. It has to be accompanied by prayer. But the the Hebrew text won't talk about prayer. That would change everything. Won't talk about prayer. I uh, won't mention anything about God or religiosity or anything of the sort. Um, the addition says, look, fasting obviously means prayer. Not, as, not only is, do we have to mention that there's prayer, I'll tell you what she said. Uh, but then, of course, beyond that, the content is also, uh, is also very, very striking. So what do you make of the, um, this emphasis on how much she hates her crown? Uh, what is, why does the author put that in her mouth? Why is it such a key point? Well, that sounds like it was written in Jerusalem, saying you can't be, don't be loyal to those Persian, those foreign monarchs. Be loyal to us back in Jerusalem. Oh, it's the foreign crowns, especially, right? Absolutely, right. That the uh, that loyal, political loyalty is a problem, right? That if she actually enjoyed being queen, that would itself be a problem with her Jewishness, right? That that the author seems uncomfortable. Uh, uncomfortable. It's not enough to say she's the queen of Persia, she's proud to be the queen of Persia, and yet she retains her loyalty to the Jews. That would not be enough. That would still be too subtle and complicated. Right? No, she is the queen. That's not, I mean, there's no way for her to get that out of the story. So she has to be the queen. But she has to hate being the queen. In fact, since the crown is the, is the symbol of being the, being the queen, uh, she wears it only when she absolutely has to. Then it feels like a menstrual rag to her. Uh, and as soon as she's out of the public eye, off her head, she would never put it on unless she absolutely, absolutely had to. So this whole queen thing, uh, according to this edition, turns out to be this, this big facade. Uh, it's not something she, it's certainly not something she wanted. It's not even something she's ever come to make peace with. It's something that she deeply resents on a daily basis, but she does as long as she needs to, because apparently she feels like it's something she can't get out of. Uh, no joy since today was brought here until now. Uh, this also, I mean, again. Yeah, you talk about it, how you know whether which one's original. Um, this is not easily integrated into the rest of the story. I mean, at the end of the story, she doesn't get up and say, "Finally, I've done my job. I can get out of the palace." Uh, she seems to go on living in the palace. Uh, she doesn't take the opportunity to uh, to throw it all off and reveal her true feelings to anyone. So uh, there's a there's an artificiality to this within the context of the narrative uh, that also suggests that it's uh, that it's secondary. Does it bother you? Is it kind of a whining? Um, it doesn't bother me that because I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, you think it's kind of whining? Yeah, I'm just wondering about, you know, I mean, she's in the position of being, uh, she knows she's in a critical position in the history of Jews. 
and uh, this is Hershey Ishkandos. And um, I don't know that we've ever seen this kind of uh, this complaining before. We have Yirmiyahu who says, you know, I wish I wasn't born. Uh, but I don't know. Something bothers me about it. I don't know. I, don't I mean, is, you know, is it a uh, female thing? Uh, I, I really don't know. <laughs> um, I, I hesitate to say because I really hadn't read it. Uh, I hadn't noticed that. Um, but uh, so I have to think. You have to have two questions. One is whether it's uh, you know is there something about female prayer? The other was is something that you read female voices that way. Uh, it's a different different question. But uh, no, I really don't know. I have to I have to read it more carefully again and see if. Uh, the implication is that like God and the reader would be judging her for having become the queen, and she's justifying herself. Right? She's saying like, I don't know where I don't want to become the queen, but it just happened to me. Yeah, uh, that's certainly how I read it. Uh, you know, so look, look at it again. Um, the other thing to just comment on before we move on is the eating in 17. Remember, it's not eaten at Haman's table. I actually don't know why they focus on Haman's table, but the theme of eating is a key is a key point. Um, First of all, I, mean, I wouldn't put it as a halakhic issue, but where, in what, in what text does this actually become a central issue? That, that the Jews won't eat from the table. Where is that a central issue? Hmm? Daniel. Daniel, exactly. This is the ch- chapter one in Daniel, is that Daniel and his friends will not eat the Babylonian food. Uh, and there too, it's not exactly a halakhic issue. Uh, it seems to be more of a, we don't eat the, the food of the palace issue. So what do they wind up eating in Daniel? Remember? Yeah, seeds, zeroim, zeronim. Uh, in other words, apparently eating uh, like a vegan diet in the palace is okay, but the cooked food is a problem. Right? Uh, again, it, it, I'm not sure that it's, it's Allah uh, as much as as much as culture. Uh, in the book of Esther, what does Esther eat in the palace? In the Hebrew, Hebrew book. If I had asked you, you know, not having seen this text, I'd say, what does Esther eat every day? What would you have said? Hmm? It doesn't say, right? So, so what would you say? Yeah, exactly. Whatever they, whatever they cook. I mean, she, she doesn't need to make a big deal about what's what's being eaten in the palace. Uh, certainly, no protest. She couldn't protest, right? She can't say anything like, "I won't eat it." Why not? They don't know she's Right. She's not allowed to say she's, she's Jewish, so she can't make a big deal about anything. I guess she could claim to be a vegan, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's just no issue in the text about what she's eating. The Greek edition says, "Well, that's." Okay. This eating the food of the non-Jews, this is a big deal. We know from Daniel it's a big deal. Um, we know, to mention the story that we talked about last time, Judith, when she comes to Holofernia, she brings her own food. says, I can't eat your food. She brings her own food in her own bag. Um, and Esther, who never made a big deal, well, now it's made for her. So she's, uh, she's never ate, uh, again, Haman's table, I'm not sure why Haman's table would be worse than anyone else's, but never honored the king's feast or drunk the wine of libation. She's avoided the uh, nourishment of the palace. I think so. Fasting and repentance, fasting and prayer, fasting and some expression of the religious sentiment that's presumably motivating the fasting. Uh, I think this is the only case where fasting is unaccompanied by anything. Uh, there's no no one says anything about what the goal is of fasting. Um, uh, all right, so we'll come back to the food next week because we'll see that Chazal uh, 
the Gemara also uh, fixates on what's Esther eating in the palace, because that is indicative of to what extent she's acculturated. Um, and I think the author of this text saw that and said, you know, if she's eating the food, if she's not even making a big deal about that, then she's really become the Persian. She's become the Persian queen, not, uh, not holding on to her Jewish identity at all. Uh, and Chazal also are gonna, going to fixate on that. They say, well, what was she eating there? We'll see that there are different, different views. But, uh, but for today, the last thing that we'll look at is the uh, painting rather than another text. Uh, this is from a synagogue in Dura Europis. So, um, briefly, Dura Europis is a. Dura uh, Europis is a, uh, a city on the Euphrates in Syria. Um, uh, in Syria, where archaeologically it's a, it's a spectacular site because it was on the frontier, on the border between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. Uh, we're talking about the early 3rd century CE now. So we've sort of fast-forwarded a few hundred years. Um, I wish we didn't have to, but it happens to be the only, only good source like this. Uh, so a few hundred years later, in the early 3rd century CE, uh, it's on the, on the frontier. It's a Parthian city. Um, and the Romans were, and the Parthians were constantly fighting. Since this is a border city, it was constantly in danger. The synagogue happens to have been near the church, which happens to have been near the uh, Mithraite pagan temple. Uh, and these are all at the city wall. They're all built against the city wall. Uh, and the, uh, as a defensive measure, when the Romans were going to attack, the residents actually covered the entire area, this entire area near the city wall, with dirt. In other words, there's massive fortifications. There's a huge, now it's a huge city wall, like 50 feet thick, um, which didn't help when the Romans conquered it. But, uh, but for us, this is, uh, for them it's very sad that the Romans did that. Uh, but for us, this is great, because um, since the synagogue was covered by the people in the 3rd century CE, in the 1920s, all archaeologists had to do was take off the dirt, and there was a beautifully preserved synagogue. And I encourage you to go home and Google Dury Europa Synagogue um, and find the pictures. Uh, essentially, what makes it so special is that it's a very large room, uh, like around the dimensions of this room, uh, with an, uh, a Rhone on one end, and beautiful paintings all around the entire, entire, uh, entire room. Um, on all four sides, apparently, although the fourth side, the farthest away from the city wall, is actually not preserved. Uh, and these paintings are biblical scenes. Some of them are identifiably biblical scenes. Some of them have strong parallels to the Midrash. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of interesting things to say about each one of them. Uh, people have also wondered whether there's some plan to the paintings as a whole. Are they telling some story or is there some grand narrative? Uh, but all that is, is in the background for us. Uh, for our purposes, what's important is that right on the front wall, to the left of the Aron, big giant painting of Esther, or what's clearly from, scenes from the book of Esther. Um, so which scenes do you, do you recognize here? There's three parts to the painting. What do you see here? Yeah, so on the left side, that's sort of the most easily identifiable part. Uh, that's Haman leading Mordechai on the horse. And in fact, you can't really tell here, and I've never seen a picture where you can tell, um, supposedly, uh, under Haman, it actually says, Haman under Mordechai, it actually says, 
uh, Mordechai. The paintings themselves are conveniently located in the Damascus Museum. Um, these are, uh, since they were found from, from Syria. Uh, so this, is a, this is a fascinating story. Back in the 20s, things were different than they are now. They were already different than they were back in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, when, you know, the British would just like go to Iraq and be like, can we take whatever we want? They'd be like, sure. And they'd like, cart off the entire city of Ninveh to the British Museum. Um, but uh, so things were already different from that, but they're still not <coughs> developed to the point that uh, we're at now. So these are Yale excavations in Syria, uh, and the deal between Yale and, uh, and the government of Syria was that they could take, uh, they would split it. They would figure out based on what they found, they would split, uh, they split what they found. Um, so remember, the 20s before, before the state of Israel. Uh, the uh, Yale actually picked the synagogue. So we want the synagogue. Uh, presumably accurately thinking that if we bring home a synagogue to northeastern United States, it'll be easy to find donors who will you know, endow the, the new wing in the Yale Museum that's going to uh, hold the synagogue. So they had all these panels actually packed up and on the boat um, from Syria, ready to go, when someone, some backstory, I don't think anyone knows, although maybe it'll be told one day, uh, someone in the Syrian government came up with the same idea. said, actually, we could get Jewish donors to, uh, to fund the, uh, the installation of the, of the Dury Europa Synagogue in Damascus. It would be great. Uh, again, that's why before the state of Israel is, is critical. Um, and they actually forced Yale to take off the synagogue paintings, and they gave them the, uh, the church and the pagan temple, which are now in Yale, and they've never gotten donors for them, because there are not that many Mithraite pagans around to, uh, <laughs> uh, to donate a wing in Yale. Um, and then, of course, fast forward 20 years, now these paintings are in the Damascus Museum, and they don't want them. Uh, they want them, but they don't want to d- display them. Um, they're there, supposedly, heard from people who were there, that they're actually installed in a, in a beautiful way. That is, they reconstructed the synagogue uh, in a very, very nice way, um, but it's not on the floor plans of the, uh, of the visitor's map of the museum. Uh, it doesn't say during the synagogue, uh, but it's apparently there. So they're there. Um, Yale owns the rights to the images, so you, know, you can get good pictures online because Yale's nice about sharing them. But uh, but the pic- paintings themselves are essentially uh, inaccessible to uh, to me anyway. Um, all right. So the one on the left is obviously uh, obviously Haman uh, leaving Mordecai. The one on the right, all the way on the right. What do you see there? Yeah, Ahasuerus is on his throne. Behind him, to his left, is, you see? Yeah, is Esther, exactly. And again, apparently under her is written Esther, although it's written uh, Aleph Salah Tet Yud Rish. Aleph Salah Tet Yud Rish. Um, in other words, it's spelled wrong. Uh, which to me suggests that the painter, the artist, uh, has never actually read the book of Esther. He knows the story. Uh, but he's never read the book because no one who's read the book would write a tent instead of a top and add a yud. Uh, but if he knows the story of Esther, uh, that might also explain why these are actually not scenes that are familiar. Uh, so this is, you know, Tachashverus sitting on his throne with Esther behind him, uh, either receiving a message or sending a message as a piece of paper that he's actually handing to someone or receiving from someone. Uh, but that's not a clearly identifiable scene in the book. Uh, you could make one up. Uh, maybe it's one of the letters, uh, maybe it's the news of the massacre. There are places where he gets or, or dispenses information, but, um, but it's not like the one on the left, uh, a sort of uh, key, key scene in the book. 
And in the middle, you have four people uh, saluting or waving or something of the sort. Uh, and that, again, is no, no obvious uh, resonance. Yeah, what were you saying? When Esther was able to get the king to, to write the last scroll, that's pretty important part of the book. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. This is really, I mean, that scroll he was to write did not put to death or Yeah, and the king actually says, you go write whatever you want. Um, so, I don't know, maybe, that, maybe that's, that's the way this is being imagined here, that he's actually handing over a scroll. Uh, it's hard to be, it's really hard to be sure. I think there's three or four possibilities over the, over the, from the story. The other, besides the three or four possibilities, it's also possible that there was a, a retold version of Esther that had something else in it that we will never know because it's been painted here, but it's not accompanied by any caption or text or anything. Um, but, uh, but I think the most important thing to say is the most obvious, that in the synagogue, in a diaspora community, uh, they put a picture of Esther front and center. And anyone who goes to the synagogue uh, facing the ark uh, just to the left is going to see a very large, this is about six feet wide, a uh, very large painting of scenes from the book of Esther. Uh, it's up there with, the, uh, with Moshe, with the Akedah, with the painting of the temple, of the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, in other words, well, the most striking thing about this, I wish we could say more about the details, but the most striking thing about this is just that, for this community at least, Esther is a major part of their heritage. When they think about you know, scenes that they want to decorate their temple with, uh, Right up front goes Esther. There's a lot of other ones all around the side. Uh, and, uh, you know, something on the back left or so, I would assume, is less significant to them than something right up front, right next to the Aron itself. Uh, which, uh, again, at least reminds us that there's probably a difference between the ways Jews in Diaspora think about the story and the way Jews in Yerushalayim, the Hashmonaim, who want to hold political power, think about the story. For Jews in Diaspora, Esther is a crucial part of their heritage. Now, Dura Europus is not Shushan. Uh, it's uh, you know, a couple hundred miles away. But it's that diaspora. And it's Jews navigating the diaspora. For these people, uh, Esther is a, is a really central, central book. Uh, I'll just add one thing, and this is what we'll uh, pick up with next time. By the time of the 3rd century CE, uh, things in Israel have changed also. There's no Beit HaMikdash. Uh, Israel is now Roman Palestine. Uh, and one could easily say, I think uh, correctly, that Jews everywhere in the 3rd century CE are essentially living in diaspora. Even if you're geographically in the land of Israel, uh, you're still a diaspora Jew, because you're living under a foreign empire, having to deal with foreign rule, uh, where the bureaucracy is conducted in a foreign language, where you have to worry about a foreign king and the foreign authority. Uh, and so this might not be a function only of the fact that we're talking about a community in Syria. It might also be the, a function of, of changed time. Uh, but certainly I think there's, uh, there's a big difference between, uh, between say, the world of the Hashmonaim and the uh, couple hundred years later uh, Jews in Dura Europis, where here they're not, uh, they're not ashamed of Esther, they're not defensive about Esther. Take Esther and say, this is a, this is a major story for us. Uh, I wish we knew more about how exactly they read the story, what they saw as important to it. That a picture can't tell us. Uh, but just the fact that they're not, uh, they're not trying to sort of uh, explain it away or embarrassingly uh, say what it's really about, but just taking it and putting it right up front with the Beit HaMikdash, with the Akedah, with Moshe getting the Luchot from, uh, from our Sinai, uh, tells us that for, for this community, Esther is a, is a, is a central part of their, of their traditions. Alright, so for next week, 
we'll, uh, we'll try to survey all of rabbinic interpretation of Esther. Uh, and in other words, try to explain how Esther went from being a, a pretty radical book in its own time to the very comfortable, familiar book that uh, many of us grew up with in, uh, in second grade, um, which uh, has sort of been cleaned up from all of its ambiguities and nuances and, and subtleties and complications, uh, and actually becomes a major part, a major statement of uh, traditional Jewish thought. So that's, uh, that's what Chazal uh, give us, that's what we'll work on next week. Thank you.